there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone cold facts since 1986. Today's fact, David Bowie makes everything around him gayer. <laughs> it's true. If you hadn't picked up on that part now, then I, I, I don't know where you've been. We have two pieces of evidence to this. The first is that Reddit post where that guy posted a picture of his dad with David Bowie and somebody responded, I can't believe David Bowie f***ed your dad. And our second piece <laughs> of evidence is the movie Labyrinth. <laughs> I guess the third one is just look at David Bowie. And also just like, look at David Bowie. It's true. This man was not of this earth remotely. <laughs> he didn't die. He went home. No, huh. he absolutely just went back to the plane of existence from which he originated. We're talking about Labyrinth. In case you couldn't pick that up. We're talking about Labyrinth today, the 1986 movie that is slightly older than me. <laughs> By like, what, a few months? <laughs> yeah, thereabouts. I picked this topic. Yeah, this was your pick. I'm excited. I picked this topic because it was one I grew up with. I wasn't too into it when I was a kid. I should note that the only copy we had was one that my sister had made uh, on VHS by recording a television copy of it. Yes! <laughs> and she fast forwarded through all the commercials, but you could kind of see all the end of the commercials for about 10 seconds because she'd pause in case it restarted after that. That's the good shit. And so that was my copy until I was about in my teens when my dad bought me a special edition Labyrinth copy which I watched until I scratched it to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> and I became more obsessed with this in my teen years because I thought, one, that Jareth the Goblin King was extremely hot. But more importantly, I thought that Jennifer Connelly, as a fellow teenager, was extremely hot. And I still think she's pretty. But now that I'm older, I love older Jennifer Connelly more, even though she's, she's, she's gorgeous all through the years. <laughs> She's so fucking hot. I, I feel like there is a point in which if you were like a millennial of some breed, you probably had some kind of sexual awakening that involved Jennifer Connelly. It just depends if it was Labyrinth or the Rocketeer. Yes, it's true. <laughs> was this sort of like your first big gay crush? Jennifer Connelly was 1000% my first big gay crush. That's so cute. <laughs> also, just look at her now. This is her literally like five months ago. She is so fucking hot. How does she exist? <laughs> She is so pretty. She is so hot. Honestly, I think for me, it's the eyebrows. It's definitely the eyebrows. Oh, God. Anyway, yes, my first big gay crush. Still a gay crush. Still a gay crush. <laughs> Clearly. I want to smooch Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> for me, Labyrinth is a movie that I also didn't really have any like childhood latching on experiences with. I watched it for the first time like deep into high school with a friend who had had like a formative labyrinth experience and knew all the words and it was weird <laughs> for me. But also this is a glass houses situation because I was definitely that weirdo that carried around the script for Monty Python the Holy Grail in my backpack. So <laughs> I can't really say what is definitively a good or bad experience to have, except mine. Mine was a bad experience. Don't have that one. I didn't watch Labyrinth until I was in my 20s because I was raised by some elder boomers who weren't of the right age range to have been exposed to Labyrinth to be able to recommend it to me. But I did eventually watch it when I was living in that 300 square foot apartment in that basement of that building that used to be a nunnery with the closet that was a tunnel to the nearby hospital that was now condos. Oh, yeah, that one. I watched a lot of movies during that period of my life because what all I basically did is that I, I worked for 12 hours a day. And then I went home to my tiny apartment and I watched Netflix. 
And that is not as pathetic as it sounds. That was actually one of the best periods of my 20s because I had a job and I was living by myself. I watched it around the same time that I watched The Last Unicorn and both of those, it's like I could tell that if I'd watched this as a child, it would have been my kryptonite and I would have been obsessed with it. But because I was watching it as an adult, it was kind of hitting different. Oh, yeah. There's so much about like those movies in particular that definitely have that kind of dreamy quality that as a kid, you really grok because it just feels so much like a fairy story. And as an adult, it doesn't quite fire those synapses in your brain anymore. Yeah, it doesn't plug directly into your brain the same way. I've never seen The Last Unicorn, but I did read it maybe about five or six years back for the first time. And I was like, oh, oh, this would have been a big deal for me. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You should talk to Key about, we should have a Last Unicorn episode where Key comes on. (laughs) That makes sense, considering our friend Key and the incredible, wafty fabric, big hair women that she draws. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can see the line here. (laughs) (laughs) That tracks. Key, her partner, and I were all discussing kind of like our formative experiences and he was like, my formative experience was Pee-wee's Playhouse. Huh. And we're like, okay, we can kind of see it. And Keith was like, the last unicorn. We're like, oh yeah, that, that went straight forward. And I was like, labyrinth. And Dan was like, God, Jareth is the most sexual rat in the world. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, have we talked about the sexual rat designation on I Will Fight You yet? Because I feel uh, like it's important for you. It is important for me. The same partner has known me for a million years. And he always says that I am attracted to the sexual rat. <laughs> Have y'all seen Bruno in Encanto? The way Dan describes it is a person, usually a man, who is attractive, but in an unconventional and somewhat greasy way, optionally (laughs) with a sketchy, shifty, or devious personality. Hmm. (laughs) And I go feral. (laughs) Oh, and imagine if the rat man has glasses. Yes. If he's a Megane with glasses and just sleazy and condescending as fuck, I love him. That's her favorite. It is my number one. (laughs) I'm not sure David Bowie fits the bill for greasy, though. Uh, No, but he's unconventional. That's the thing. That is true. He is distinctly odd looking. That is very true. He's unconventional. He cabedons Jennifer Connelly at one point during Labyrinth. He does do that. And he's manipulative as fuck, and I am so into it. (laughs) Shall we get into the Labyrinth itself? Yes. We open on a teenager... In no, Renfair, we don't. Hold on. We open on a we CGI don't open owl. On a teenager. We open on a CGI right. owl. We You're open right. on David Bowie singing and a, an owl from a 2003 video game. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, this owl isn't from a 2003 video game. This owl is from a 1999 screensaver. <laughs> yes. And we've got David Bowie singing "Underground," which slaps. <laughs> God, this, this owl! This, I just this, this whole playlist slaps. I know every word. This is the only part of the movie they use the CGI owl. Everything else is just a real owl yeah. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> but then after the owl flies around and introduces you to all the big names that you know, like Jim Henson, <laughs> George Lucas, Brian Froud, Terry Jones, then we open flash cut to a park where we see a girl, Sarah, aka Jennifer Connelly, in a Renaissance-style gown, repeating lines going, Give me the child through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered. I have fought my way to the castle. And then after she finishes, and my kingdom is great, thunder rumbles overhead. She pauses and goes, Damn, what's the next line? Because she's reciting a line from a play she's reading. I would imagine this is how baby Mackenzie spent a significant portion of her childhood. That's a f- 
absolutely. <laughs> I mean, just the energy of a 14-year-old or whatever in a Renaissance dress, who we later find out is wearing jeans under it. He's wearing jeans underneath the Renaissance dress. Which is so good. Wandering <laughs> around a public place, reciting lines from, like, a book she's reading. How... <laughs> Oh, it's just such a very specific energy that I want to protect. <laughs> <laughs> that is peak baby McKenzie energy right there. Look at this horrible little nerd. I love her. <laughs> her dog named Merlin, which good fucking name for a dog. Good name for a dog, especially a, an English sheep dog like this one. You know she's the one who named that dog. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. you know she named it. Starts barking at her right as the church bell starts ringing and she realizes, oh shit. It's 7 p.m. I was supposed to be home an hour ago. What's interesting is that we then see her run across town, which is odd because usually this would be the kind of thing where you would establish the town and establish her place in it. No, we're never going to see this again. No. Nope. Doesn't matter. Not at all relevant to the film. <laughs> so I would absolutely just wander the streets of this town, which I think is upper, which I think is in New York. I would absolutely wander the streets of this town in a renaissance gown with jeans underneath it while holding the things up, just just to feel closer. And muttering lines from the movie Labyrinth under your breath? Absolutely would I. I'm sure the residents of that town would adore you for it. They'd be so used to it. Mm -hmm. Sarah eventually gets home, where she finds her stepmother waiting for her on the porch, saying, Come in, it's pouring. You're an hour late. Which, like, yeah, I feel like if she's an hour late, then she's definitely got a reason to be, like, kind of upset with Sarah. Absolutely. But even then, she's like, this is a nice lady. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is obviously a nice lady. She is, like, considering <laughs> that, that her stepdaughter has been missing for an hour and they have been waiting on her to babysit so they can go out to dinner, she is being extremely reasonable here. Yes. Yep. Like, the whole point is to know that both Sarah's stepmother and her father are extremely reasonable people. Because it's like, she's like, look... We don't ask you to babysit very often, just when it doesn't conflict with other plans you have, and you don't seem to have any other plans. Other than standing in a park and reciting lines <laughs> to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe if that was on your schedule, you could have told us about it. She's like, y you don't really go out with friends. It it'd be cool if you did. I, I could help. This also puts into mind my mom. <laughs> Could regularly be like, I would be sitting role playing on my computer or sending Pern play by emails or whatever, and she would say, "Do you have anything to do with friends this weekend?" I'm like, "No." What? And she's like, "It'd be nice if you did. <laughs> Maybe ask Nicola Valerie if you could spend the night." <laughs> And I love that Sarah is just like the whiniest teenager here. She's like, oh, you'd never let me do anything. You're so mean. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't do anything right. And I love how I can't do anything right. She's like in response to because she's storming up the stairs and her dad steps out cradling her little half brother. And he goes, oh. You're here. We were worried about you. And she goes, I can't do anything right. And storms into her room and slams the door. <laughs> I love it. It is perfectly unashamed of the extreme feelings of a teenager. Yeah. And so then we see our first glimpse of, well, we, that's not really a first glimpse. We just saw her reciting from a book and in a fucking Renaissance gown in a park. But her stepmom's like, she treats me like an evil stepmother from a fairy tale. And her dad's like, I'll go talk to her. We get this great pan over everything in Sarah's room. Like, I love... It's so good. ...how much thought was put into this room to tell so you everything good. about this character. First, you've got, like, 
all these various parts that are part of the movie later. Like you've got where the wild things are with Ludo on the front. You've got her little twirling princess music box with her dress she wears later. There's one of those marble mazes that is done up like a labyrinth. There's a Sir Didymus as a stuffed doll. She's got like a David Bowie maquette on her vanity. Yes. And also of importance is because she's got a scrapbook too that also says mom with hearts on it that's filled with mom stuff. In one of the newspaper articles, which is like, on again, off again, romance back together. It's her mom and David Bowie. Is it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, I missed that. I think I was distracted by just the cutout of a screen from Disney's Robin Hood in the scrapbook. Yes, Robin Hood. Yeah. There is also a playbill in there. The implication here is that like her mom was an actress, is now deceased. Or just divorced and run off with David Bowie. Or she's just not around. And meanwhile, like Sarah has sort of mythologized herself into the kind of fairy tale that her mother would have starred in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's also, by the way, we see it clearly later on in the movie. She also has a poster for cats. Okay. <laughs> Target audience for that one. That's her. She also, of note, later in the movie, whenever her place is collapsing, you actually see a, a copy of D&D. Oh, excellent. This child is one of us. Yes, yeah, she's one of us. That explains the method by which she navigates some of the obstacles in the, <laughs> in the labyrinth. That's true. Is, some of her solutions to these problems are definitely some D&D shit. And it's like first edition D&D. Maybe AD&D. Yeah. Yep. You know, the instant death of editions of D&D. Honestly, though, I would say that doesn't quite match up because she's not investigating every single square in front of her for traps. <laughs> this is fair. <laughs> We also see her bookshelf, which has The Wizard of Oz, Outside Over There by Marie Sendak, all the books of Hans Christian Andersen and Grimm's Fairy Tales, of course. And she also has this huge wall of like plushes of like all these well-loved stuffed animals. And of course, they're all named because she references them later. Mm -hmm. Like there's Lancelot. I would also name all of my things after King Arthur's Court, so... <laughs> Love it. And then, like, we get this point where her dad knocks on the door and's like, hey, everything okay in there, hon? And she goes, no, go away. So he does. And, yeah, he goes, okay, well, we put Toby to bed. We'll be back around midnight. She's like, yeah, you really wanted to talk to me, didn't you? You broke down the door. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a single thing you can do to make this child happy. <laughs> I mean, she even does, like, the pitch-perfect princess dramatic flounce onto the bed. <laughs> All of this is very calculated and yet somehow completely sincere. <laughs> it is so real for how it feels to be a weird 14-year-old. Yeah, so good. I also love that added bit with the dad of like, okay, well, we did the hard part and put the baby to bed. Please just make sure the baby doesn't die through the night. That's all you got to do. <laughs> do whatever else you want to do. Yeah, can't even pull that off. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Sarah, no matter what you do, don't give the baby away to the Goblin King, okay? <laughs> okay. That's all you need. That's the one thing you need to do tonight. Don't give him to the Goblin King. And then what happens? Immediately. Immediately she noticed that Lancelot's, Lancelot's one of her bears is missing from his cubby. And she like screams, someone has been in my room again. I hate that. <laughs> and she storms dramatically out. I love how much this girl talks to herself. She just delivers yeah. dramatic monologues to herself, either yelling or <laughs> under her breath at all times, which again, all extremely times. sincere and real. And she storms her way out, storms her way into her infant baby half-brother's room. Although it seems like, I think it's a crib in her parents' room, I'm guessing. That does look like it's the case. This is way too clean to be an infant's room. <laughs> 
this kid is a maybe one and a half. He is not coherent enough to speak regularly. Yeah, this is a baby that is old enough to, like, you don't have to worry about the baby, like, rolling over onto himself and making a divot in his head. This is a baby that is old enough to, like, you know, not quite walk yet. Also, he's awake and he's cranky. So Sarah picks up Lancelot and is angrily like, I hate you, I hate you. To a baby. To a baby. So then she starts overdramatically being like, someone save me, someone take me away from this awful place. Oh my god, in this extraordinarily gorgeous home that she this lives in. beautiful <laughs> house. Where all she needs to do tonight is like, keep a child from dying of SIDS. <laughs> <laughs> Like, she could go downstairs and put on a movie and make some popcorn. <laughs> Her parents are out of the house. This is ideal. Yeah. Yeah. She then starts telling a story about how a beautiful girl was made to be a slave and stay with her arrogant baby brother. He's he's like one and a half. After a long day of housework, which is reciting her story under her breath in a park. Yeah. I really do buy this because, like, she's clearly built up her mom in her head as, like, this idealized figure. Mm -hmm. So the fact that this stepmom has come along, and despite the fact that she's, like, the nicest lady, of course she hates this woman. And, of course, she hates the fact that there's this baby around, not only cementing the relationship between her dad and this woman, but also taking attention away from her where it belongs. Exactly. And, I mean, you know, you could get into some things here where, in a worser situation, she would now have to be the second parent or the third parent to this baby. But judging by the way the parents are, this clearly doesn't seem to be the case here. No, it's clearly just she babysits once a week. (laughs) When she doesn't have any other plans. Which she doesn't because she's a fucking nerd who would rather just stand in a park reciting poetry to herself. (laughs) To her dog. (laughs) To her dog. (laughs) Also, there is a note here where it is absolutely just a sign of the times that I find wild, which is, no, the dog can't come inside. He has to go into the garage. This is still part of that era where, like, dogs just lived in the garage and you let them out at night sometimes. And just, it's wild, wild to me. (laughs) And also, like, it's a nice house. You don't want your muddy dog with long hair in the foyer. That's true. He's got to go in the back way. (laughs) That's true. This is the 80s. We have a lot of wall-to-wall carpeting. (laughs) So much wall-to-wall carpeting. Including the bathroom. An English sheepdog that gets waterlogged is like, <laughs> that, that is that is several buckets worth of water <laughs> in that dog. <laughs> then we get Sarah monologuing where she keeps kind of getting it wrong. And we flash to the goblins in the Goblin City during this where she's like, I wish I can bear it no longer. Goblin King, Goblin King, wherever you may be, take this child of mine far away from me. And the goblins are like, she didn't even say it right. There was no I wish there. It's really fun because, like, she just starts talking about I wish and then we see, like, just a room full of goblins, a screen full of goblins <laughs> looking right into the screen and suddenly paying attention. And it's, it's, it's a very cool reveal for the goblins, but also, like, all good fiction asks questions. And the question at the center of Labyrinth is, what if there were some f***ed up little guys? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I love this shot of wall-to-wall goblins just looking directly at the screen. I-, I love this idea that they just hear someone asking for the goblins wherever they're at, because that's just so fairy tale. Where are these goblins right now? Doesn't matter. Where is the labyrinth and the goblin castle? Doesn't matter. Not relevant. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even a uh, thing where it's like a plot oversight. It just earnestly does not matter, and it does not care to explain that which 
Yes. No, because it's a fairy tale. Yeah. The goblins will just get you. It's interesting because this is a fairy tale featuring a character who knows she's in a fairy tale. Yes. But she's <laughs> obsessed with fairy tales, so she knows the fucking trope. Which is amazing because you think at some point she would, you know, take to carry around some cold iron or something with her. Nope. <laughs> Eventually she does get it right with, I wish the goblins would come and take you away right now. And she turns the flounce out and immediately with a snap, the baby stops crying. Yeah, it's a very good scene. You don't even yeah. have to show anything. You just have to hear this baby suddenly stop crying and you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because the baby has been crying nonstop, like shrill for the last scene. So maybe the last five minutes or so. So like the sudden absence of it is perfect. When Sarah pauses, like, oh, God, what just happened? You also pause like, oh, God, what just happened? She turns, she goes, the power is out in the room and there are little goblin noises coming from the crib. And so you do this whole sequence where she slowly looks around the room. She pulls back the blanket. The baby's gone. And like behind her in like this whole shot, you see weird little scuttling guys like depositing <laughs> themselves around the room. Many that you never actually see like full on. Just some f***ed up little guys. <laughs> The goblins are here. The goblins are here. The goblins are here. And they're great. And they're wonderful little Jim Henson puppets. Oh, they're such good little <laughs> Jim Henson puppets. They're just oh, like... They're great. <laughs> it's everything Jim Henson likes. It's weird little beaks. It's big bug eyes. Teeth where you really would rather the puppet not have teeth, but the puppet has teeth. <laughs> it's menacing little giggles. It's all very good. Ugh. It's so good. And there's a real owl smashing into the window. And suddenly the window flies open and you see a shadow transition of the owl turning into Jareth, the Goblin King, a.k.a. David Bowie. Yeah, it's David Bowie. He can anamorph into an owl. It's David Bowie in a real fucked up wig and some tights that are tight. <laughs> oh, oh, David Bowie. They are extremely tight. You can see that junk the whole time. <laughs> This man is going to change his tops throughout the movie. He'll change his tights, too. But the tights stay exactly that tight forever. Always. Forever. So he appears before Sarah, and Sarah's like, I would like my brother back, please. And he's like, what said is said. Forget the baby. I brought you a gift, a crystal. And he twirls. And a good thing to know is David Bowie couldn't twirl like this. One of the puppeteers was a juggler. So he was like reaching around David Bowie and doing. Yeah, this, that's just a puppeteer's arm doing fushigi contact juggling. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's important to note how, like, pivotal contact juggling is in the aesthetic of this movie and absolutely nowhere <laughs> else in the world ever in time. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Henson was like, David Bowie needs to contact juggle, and if he can't, we will make it look like he can. <laughs> we will put the contact juggler in a David Bowie wig so we can shoot him juggling from the back. <laughs> We will do that thing from whose line is it anyway, where the one person puts the arms behind their back, but the other person is their arms. He can't contact juggle, but he needs to. He needs to. I admire David Bowie for being like, I'm not learning to fucking contact juggle. (laughs) (laughs) Stands by his principles. Yes. I have a theory here. David Bowie is clearly a creature from some other dimension. I believe that per the aesthetics of this, David Bowie could contact Juggle. He refused to. (laughs) (laughs) But he says, do you want this, Sarah? Then forget the baby. Do you want this ball that you can spin on your fingers if you get good at it? I have a videotape cassette that will give you instructions. (laughs) 
she's like, I can't. And so he throws the orb at her and it turns into a snake and just don't defy me. <laughs> you know, the bald snake to scarf pipeline. It's just one to one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the scarf scurries away and does a messed up little goblin giggle. I love it. Yeah. I love that you have all these weird little guys who, like, maybe come up to your kneecap, and then there's David Bowie who rules over them. Yeah. It's such a good aesthetic that just looks so <laughs> weird for the rest of the movie, and I'm so into it. I'm so into it. He gestures over his shoulder, and outside her window is now the labyrinth with the kingdom in the distance. And he gestures towards it, and he's like, it's further than you think, and time's too short. You've got 13 hours till your baby brother becomes a goblin forever. Such a pity. <laughs> Sarah's like, doesn't look that hard, I can do this. It's only a model. And then we flash to her going through the lab, well, walking to the labyrinth. Can we talk about the fact that Sarah never is like, what happened to my house? Yeah, no. <laughs> just like, all right. She just embraces it. She's 100% bought in. She knows how this works. Yes. <laughs> she plays D&D. She knows how this goes. At no point is Sarah ever surprised that magic is real. She completely takes that for granted. She's just surprised that her actions have consequences. Yes. <laughs> Which again... It's and a fairy story. It's all about how actions have consequences. That's the only thing stories are about. Yeah. yeah. By the end of this movie, you're going to be thinking, wait, was that sort of all in her head? Was the magic real? And again, I will point out, doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> doesn't matter. <laughs> Does not matter. <laughs> Does not matter at the fucking all. It's like asking if any of the fairies in Pan's labyrinth were real. Does not fucking matter. Nope. Yeah. Or like, doesn't matter. Was it just a hallucination as they died and over the garden wall? Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Does not matter. <laughs> it's a fairy tale. Shut up. <laughs> so she has 13 hours to solve the labyrinth. And so her first trick is actually getting into the labyrinth, which she does by finding yeah. a weird little man taking a piss. <laughs> yeah, he's pissing into a lake. This hoggle. He's the bookend on her shelf. And he turns around after zipping up and is like, oh, it's you, because he clearly recognizes her, because Jareth actually sent him to distract her. And, you know, this is also a fairy story. She's the heroine here. Everybody knows how this works. Yes, everybody knows how it works. We know that you're the heroine on account of the fact that you're not a f***ed up little guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Huggle picks up a little spray bottle and starts spraying fairies with pesticide. <laughs> it's very good. It's very good. He's keeping count. He's really excited when he reaches a round number. Yeah. yeah. And Sarah's like, what are you doing? You're so cruel. And goes to pick up one of the fairies and it promptly bites her. And she's like, it bit me. And he's like, what do you expect them to do? Which, yes, perfect. This is how fairies should work. And she's like, I expected them to grant wishes. She's like, shows what you know and keeps coming. Y'all, I have a confession to make at this point. Yes. Yep. The phrase buff hoggle that I uttered when we talked about Hansel and Gretel witch hunters is so cemented in my head that this is just regular hoggle to me now. <laughs> like, that's buff hoggle. So there's buff hoggle and regular <laughs> hoggle. Regular hoggle. <laughs> I just, buff hoggle just fires the synapses in my brain that says, put this in the long-term memory storage. I get kind of annoyed when people argue in favor of this kind of fairy by saying, oh, I want fairies to be mean. I don't want fairies to be like Tinkerbell when like the first thing Tinkerbell tried to do was kill Wendy. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> literally the first thing she did as a character was try to kill Wendy. <laughs> Tinkerbell is a little bitch. Have you ever like engaged with Peter Pan in any way, shape or form? <laughs> Tinkerbell is a perfect spiteful little bitch. She's a horrible little gremlin, and that's why she's awesome. That's why we love her. That's why she's great. 
So then we go through semantics. So Sarah's like, where's the door to the labyrinth? And Hoggle's like, I don't know, man. And she's like, where's the door? And he goes, you need to ask the right question. She goes, how do I get in? And he's like, you get in right there. And she turns around and there's a door. (laughs) (laughs) We're about to get into some pedantic fairy shit. Yep. One could argue that door wasn't there before, but it's also funnier if she just didn't notice it was there. (laughs) Yeah. You need to realize that all the fairies and all the fucking fairies here in the labyrinth are pedantic as shit, and I love them for it. Look, if there's one thing the fairies love, it's tragically ironic word choice. Yeah. Can I have (laughs) your name? Oh, yeah, of course. It's okay. Thank you. I'm called that now. Oh, that's my name now. Thanks. I love fairies. Sarah gets in and just chooses a random direction to start going. And is this the part where she breaks off with Hoggle? Yeah, she breaks off with Hoggle basically immediately. Yeah, because Hoggle's like, yeah, nah, I'm not getting into this. Later, girl. And she's like, thanks for nothing, Hogwarts. (laughs) (laughs) I will point out this to some of the younger people in the audience. This movie does predate Harry Potter by like a good decade. Like a decade. The important thing is, is thanks for nothing, Hogwarts. It's a perfect phrase that you can use right now. And it has nothing to do with Harry Potter. (laughs) No, no. Thanks for nothing, Hogwarts. It's a perfect phrase to use when talking about a horrible turf queen. Sarah runs down the thing. We start saying the weird shit. Like we have eyeball moss that moans as she runs past. Yeah, what the fuck is up with the eyeball moss, by the way? I love that Jim Henson just went hog wild with this movie. (laughs) We should probably note that this is Jim Henson's like utter passion project. Like this and Dark Crystal. There's a thing that happens later on that nearly toppled the entire project. And it's just like, it's a weird puppet sequence that doesn't matter. Yep. (laughs) Jim Henson was so into making everything with weird puppet shit in this movie that he possibly could. <laughs> and it's so my aesthetic. I see baby McKenzie in that eyeball moss. The eyeball moss in particular? Kind of like everything because it's like, it makes me think of every changeling game I've ever taken part. Ah. It makes me think of like all the dumb stories I wrote as a kid. Love it. You do have a particular like affinity for quote-unquote biblically accurate angels aka angels with a whole bunch of extra eyes oh yeah i know ezekiel was one book it was one One book but then they're all the apocrypha (laughs) there are so many types of biblically accurate angels also they appear in daniel too covering their junk in that window not lots of eyes y'all we don't have time to get into biblically accurate angels (laughs) no we don't have time for this (laughs) yeah for this conversation please see friend of the show apocrypals yes Sarah eventually pauses to complain about how it can't be a labyrinth because there's no turns. They have so many shots of her just running down the same hallway with some slightly different crap on the sides. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And eventually she meets a little snail with a scarf who's like, Allo! No, it's just a little, like, caterpillar dude. Yeah, just a little guy. Just a little caterpillar dude with a scarf who, who speaks with a Cockney accent. Yeah. Hello, did you just say hello? No, I said hello, but close enough. Pedantic fairy shit. <laughs> yep. So she's like, uh, can you tell me how to get deeper in? And he's like, oh yeah, just go over there. And she starts going left. He goes, no, don't go that way. Go the other way. Never go that way. We do one of those trick of the eye things where it turns out she's taking for granted that the labyrinth would have twists and turns and that she hasn't seen a side route. But it's one of those things where the wall is recessed and she just can't see it because the pattern looks exactly the same as like the walls around it. It's one of those things. I'm I'm describing it badly. It's so good. Just watch the movie. It's an illusion. (laughs) (laughs) So 
she goes through and it's time for dance magic dance to start. Before she heads off from the caterpillar, it's like, no, 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 don't go that way. Don't ever go that way. She's like, oh, thanks. I'll go the other way. And as she leaves, he's like, she had gone that way. She would have gone straight to the castle. How terrible. <laughs> oh, I love this little, I love this little worm. <laughs> At some point, he's like, no, you should come in. Have a cup of tea with the missus. He's next to, like, a small, like, finger-sized hole in the wall. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How do you foresee <laughs> this playing out, bud? We flash to the goblins who are all dancing around, and Toby the baby. Toby Froud is Brian Froud's baby son. Brian Froud is the guy who did all the conceptual design and, like, uh, helped create the puppets. I love that when casting this baby, they were just like, okay, who on the crew has a baby we yeah. can use? Who's got a baby? <laughs> I remember on my DVD, there was the director's cut, and they also referenced how initially the baby had another name, but they had to make it Toby because that was the only name the baby would respond yeah. to because that was the baby's actual name. <laughs> There's a great thing here where Toby Froud actually stayed in puppeteering as he grew up. Yeah. He's worked for Leica, so he did a lot of work on Paranorman, Box Trolls, Kubo, Missing Link. Yes. He also recently worked on the Dark Crystal series for Netflix. And I guess he's like a puppet sculptor for that Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio movie. Yes. Good job, Toby. It's neat that he's just like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to keep doing this weird puppet shit. Yeah. <laughs> Although he picked like the one special interest where people were guaranteed to recognize him from Labyrinth, which is maybe a mistake that he made. <laughs> yeah, it might be. So David Bowie's like bopping around with these with these goblins. <laughs> okay, that's the best way to describe it, though. He's just bopping around. He's an adult man around, hanging out around. in this chair with all these like weird screaming little guys. And like, this is his every day, isn't it? This is what he does. This is his every day. This is just what he does. This is just his life, man. <laughs> and he leans into a goblin. He goes, you remind me of the babe. And, and what follows is dance, magic dance. <laughs> okay, so like, I found out the other day that this is actually like the you remind me of the babe back and forth is actually a reference to like a Shirley Temple song. Yeah. <laughs> it is in and of itself. I think they just kept it from looping to remind me of the babe back at the end. Yeah. But like, it's actually a pre-existing thing, which makes the context of Dance Magic Dance even weirder. The song that makes no sense to begin with. <laughs> I feel like a, referring to a Shirley Temple movie would have been a deep cut even in 1986. <laughs> As the singing is going on, and as we can hear the music in the background, we flash to Sarah, who's trying to keep track of where she's going by using lipstick on the labyrinth floor. But the tile switchers keep coming up and shouting things like, Your mother's not fuck! And switching it around or flipping it over, so her lipstick immediately is useless. Oh, that's what it is. It's from, it's song lyrics that refer to the 1947 movie The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxers, starring Cary Grant and Shirley Temple, in which the two of a call and reply <laughs> verse, You remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What power? The power of hoodoo. You do? Y you do. And they don't, they just don't have the do what remind me of the babe return. It's from a Cary Grant movie. I feel like that would have been a deep cut even in the 80s. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway. <laughs> Flash back and forth to the goblins as they finish dance, magic dance. And Sarah eventually notices that her lipstick marks keep getting turned around and goes, it's not Fair. Yeah, I like that she just like Cute. puts down some lipstick to mark a little arrow on a tile, and then instantly a guy's like, "Why did you do that? That's my tile. What? What's wrong with you? God!" Yeah. <laughs> and instantly behind her, you get a truth and a lie door because everybody knows what that is. Being like, 
What is it fair? Oh my god, the door guys. And talking to her. The truth in lie doors, this is where you can tell she plays Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. I know, right? Because like, <laughs> this is our setup, folks, of you have two ways to go. There are two guards guarding these ways. One of them leads to where you want to go. The other one leads to certain death. One of the guards always tells the truth. The other one always lies. And you have to ask them one question to determine which way to go. And Sarah just knows it instantly. She doesn't even think. Yeah. She's like, I know this answer. And she's like, what would he say is behind this door? It's just a weird turnaround bit of a logic loop because it's like you have to ask one guard which way the other guard would say to go. And then you take the opposite of whatever that answer is because... The truth teller would tell you what the lying one would say, and then the liar would lie about what the truth teller would say. And I I just the fact that Sarah doesn't even hesitate and instantly knows the answer, which is is just God, this D&D nerd. Yeah. Yeah. Not once taking into account that maybe both of them are lying. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Which honestly, the fact that she plays like first or second edition D&D, she really ought to expect that kind of bullshit. <laughs> and, and what's also great about is that they're like, wait, why'd you make that choice? And she tells them to it. And one of them's like, is that right? And the other one goes, I don't know. I never understood it. <laughs> <laughs> she steps through the door and instantly falls down to the pit of hands. <laughs> the pit of oh, hands. Oh, God, I love these creepy helping hands. The helping hands. So I want to reference this pit of hands. There has to be a lot of really horny fan art for the Pit of Hands specifically, right? There has to be. I want to note that the Pit of Hands starred in a recurring nightmare I had as a kid. Oh, I would believe that. Oh my god. (laughs) I'll buy it. In this recurring nightmare, I was partners with Mulder and Scully and investigating supernatural things. What? Hold up. (laughs) Hang on. I feel like this has suddenly gotten like way too detailed. (laughs) Hold on, X-Files was involved in this one? Yes, because... Why is this nightmare about the helping hands like several layers deep? (laughs) Because my dad was obsessed with X-Files, so I watched it a lot with him. Okay, okay, so Mulder and Scully in the hand pit, what happened? It was Mulder and Scully, and we were told that there was a lion outside of town. A lion? And we were like, we're in the middle of the f***ing Midwest, there's no way there's a lion in town. And we went to this cave called the Onion Cave, because it was filled with purple (laughs) onions. And to get through Mm -hmm. the cave, there were the helping Uh hands. uh Wait, the helping hands were helping you? No, the helping hands were in the cave, and they would try to stop you from entering the lion's cave of purple onions. (laughs) Well, then they're not helping hands, are they? (laughs) But if you politely asked, they would help. Uh Uh-huh. Ah, okay. And this was a nightmare I had multiple times as a kid. Yeah, that sounds right. It's one of those things where it doesn't actually sound all that scary, just kind of weird. But when you're in it, it's terrifying. Yeah, exactly. The onion cave where the lion is. (laughs) Yes. Obviously. It's sort of unclear at this point whether or not Sarah actually got the right door. Because, like, the hands are like, all right, well... I mean, where do do you want to go up or down? Yeah, no, they do this really cool thing where they take like several pairs of hands to make like a mouth and eyes and like kind of a nose structure to like speak to her. And there's like three or four different variations of this. And it's just very cool the way that they filmed this. And also very unnerving. Very unnerving. It's deeply unnerving and and awesome. Especially once she goes, I guess, down, please. They go, she chose down. (laughs) (laughs) And like almost a game show voice. And they just sort of like pass her down a hole. And then she falls into what she is then told several times as an oubliette. Yes. 
a word that only D&D nerds really know. Yeah. And Hoggle, who then has to explain it to her, because Hoggle's here. Hoggle's here. Regular Hoggle's back. We flash to Jareth and the goblins, where the goblin's like, Sir, she's in the oubliette. And Jareth is like, what? She should not have gotten that far. And he's like, well, Hoggle will lead her back to the beginning. And then he tells a joke and he's, and everybody's just kind of sitting there. And he's like, well, laugh. And I love it. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed the whole bit. Like, they do that a couple of times where he just sort of laughs and then the goblin is just like, huh? And he's like, no, 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 this is the part where you laugh. I made a funny joke. I'm like, oh! Yeah. <laughs> These horrible little guys. <laughs> so Sarah's now in the oubliette. And Hoggle describes it as just being like, just a bad place, I guess. Yeah. A place where you put people to forget about them. Which is not an incorrect definition, no. <laughs> but I was, I think she was hoping for more detail. Yeah. <laughs> It's not an incorrect definition. It is a very much a fairy tale definition. So it turns out Sarah has noticed that Hoggle has just like a conspicuous like ring of jewelry uh, against his bag. And he keeps offering to take her back to the beginning of the nap <clears throat> of the labyrinth as I choke. And she's like, how about I give you this bracelet? Here's another very McKenzie point because this is like Goblin Market 101. Mm -hmm. She's like, how about I give you this bracelet if you take me deeper? And he's like, what is that anyway? And she goes, plastic? And he goes, ooh, plastic. And you may think that he's being sarcastic there, the way that Mackenzie's reading that. He's 100% genuine. He's like, oh, plastic. He's, he's genuine. No, completely sincere. <laughs> like she doesn't even try to disguise it. He's just like, plastic. <laughs> <laughs> he's excited. Again, very D&D &D in that you have this NPC with something <laughs> conspicuous on his person that you can then use to bribe him with. Yeah. Hoggle agrees and, and gets started on actually leading her deeper. And uh, he's got like the little bracelet on his hand and it's so cute. He opens the door and they start walking through the path where these rock faces are shouting, don't go forward. You're walking to your doom. Perhaps you'll go up the <laughs> treacherous passage into the shrine of the silver monkey. <laughs> and Hoggle's like ignoring the false alarms. A, I love that there. He's just like, oh, they're false alarms. Just throwing that pun out there yeah. with you know a very little fanfare. And secondly, I love that there's one of them who's like, please let me say li my line. I never get to say my line. <laughs> Don't expect us to be very surprised by it. And he goes, no, 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 no. I get it. I get it. Beware. <laughs> <laughs> that entire bit is like from a Lucas Arts point and click adventure game. <laughs> And like they move on after the last guy and you can hear him mutter like, oh, thank you. I never get to say that. <laughs> uh, it's very good. <laughs> As they finish going past the false alarm, Jareth's orb rolls by, hops into this tin, which then turns the soothsayer guy tin, turns into Jareth. <laughs> he just rises up wearing all that stuff and turns into Jareth. The note I have here is Sarah and Hoggle are menaced by contact juggling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And here we get more of the joke of Hedrick Hogwarts. Hoggle! No one knows his name. <laughs> so, like, David Bowie is just like, hey, girl, so what you doing in the labyrinth? How's it going? It's going bad? It should go bad. I think it should be going bad. Why is it going good? Anyway, Cabedon. Yeah, Cabedon happens. <laughs> Where he leans over and, and of note, Sarah at this point, with cause Hoggle's like, oh, yes, I am just leading her to the beginning, sir. Don't worry. Please get off my ass. <laughs> he Cabedon's Sarah. And he's like, oh, if you're having such an easy time. And he gestures to the clock and spins it forward. So she loses several hours. And she goes, that's not fair. 
already goes, you say that so often. I wonder what your basis for comparison is. And mwah, I love that line. It's so good. And I also kind of like that, like, you know, Jareth is very clearly Sarah's fantasy. Yeah. Everything about him is her fantasy to the point where he appeals to her sense of drama and injustice yeah. by changing the rules on her yeah. without warning. And like, when you think of this in the context of he's in the picture with her mom who left her dad for this guy, like, it even makes more sense. Because clearly he's a fantasy guy to take her fantasy mom away. That's good. I like that. She would actually be disappointed if it weren't more dramatic. So therefore, he bends time and space for her. Yes. Has to up the stakes to make it a proper challenge. Exactly. Yes. So then he throws his close contact juggling ball into the distance and is like, well, I'll see how you fare for this. And then Hoggle screams, no, not the Kaleeders. Oh my God. As this drill just appears. <laughs> Oh, God. So, like, they're in this tunnel. It is fairly circular. And behind them, taking up the entire tunnel, is this huge drill with a whole bunch of other drills attached to it. It looks <laughs> horrifying. And I love that, like, th it, this thing chases them down the hallway for, like, an inordinate amount of time. And then when they finally mm -hmm. find a side patch and dive in, we see that go past and it's just, it's powered by little guys. <laughs> on, like, a bicycle. <laughs> it's just... Like, it's this huge, enormous <laughs> drill. Everything in the labyrinth is powered by little guys. You'd think it would be this gigantic piece of, like, industrial machinery, but behind the drill, it's just some guys on some bicycles just, like, hanging out. It's just some guys. <laughs> it's it's good. All technology in this world is powered by little guys. <laughs> it's such a good bit. It's such a good bit. <laughs> it's just a really good, just, like, visual gag that the characters don't even really call attention to. They're just like, hey, what's up? No. Hey, we're the cleaners. It's just completely accepted as, yeah, this is yeah, right. Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> as they're leaving, Sarah's like, why should I ever trust you? And Hoggle's like, you have to understand my position. I'm a coward. And Jera scares me. <laughs> and I, I love that, too. <laughs> it's very good. He's a very earnest little guy. And he also says that, like, if I don't do what he says, he will send me to the bog of eternal stench. Yeah. She's like, what's that? And he's like... What do you think? It's what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> and I also would like to note that they're having this conversation while climbing up a ladder, Hoggle's leading. So they're talking about a bog of eternal stench with Sarah's head inches from Hoggle's butt. Yeah. I think she knows what a bog of eternal stench smells like, Hoggle. <laughs> I think she knows now. <laughs> so they climb out into the hedge version of the labyrinth, basically, because there's hedges all around. And she steals the jewels that are hanging on Hoggle's side to try and make him help her because he just wants to leave. And he's like, well, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> and she has this sudden realization, this moment of clear, like, oh, no, it's not, is it? This is what it's like talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> So they talk for a while, which is about when this old guy with a bird hat walks onto the scene and sits slowly down. I love this bird hat so much. <laughs> My note is, what fresh hell of whimsy is this? <laughs> Followed by a wizard Banjo-Kazooie. <laughs> so she talks to the, the man, asks for the directions to go to the center. The guy doesn't tell her anything useful and keeps telling the bird to shut up. He just says, like, it's closer than you think and farther than you think or something. So then he falls asleep and the bird's like, are you going to are you gonna pay us for that information? And she goes to give something of Hoggle's and Hoggle's like, no. And she's like, okay. And she takes off her ring and hands it over. And Hoggle's like, you didn't have to do that, though. Like, he actually didn't help you. Why did you tip him? I also love that the bird throughout the whole thing is like, 
interrupting the old man who is slowly trying to get through a sentence. And after he falls asleep, he's like, I, I think that's all you're getting out of him, folks. Yeah. <laughs> I love that the, the entire time this wizard is trying to be ominous and wise, this bird is just doing bits. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like watching like Frank Oz and Jim Henson try to do some kind of like TV spot for the Muppet show. Fozzie's just doing bullshit in the background while Kermit's trying to say a line. Of no, as Sarah and Hoggle walk off and Hoggle's like, you didn't have to give that. She's like, no, I gave my thing because you're my friend. I didn't want to use your stuff without permission. And Hoggle's like, oh, he's touched. But as he's walking away, the bird says a line that Teen McKenzie was obsessed with. And I don't know why I was. Okay. Looking back on it, I have no idea. Because the hat goes, it's so stimulating being your hat. And I used to just say that to people for no reason. Why? <laughs> Why would you say that to people? I don't know. I look back <laughs> on it. I have no re- no no knowledge or no reason why. That's just a weird little quote you latched onto, huh? Yes. You just watched that and your brain was like, this is a lodestone. Build things off of this. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I fully admit to constantly from my childhood up until now, every time I see a Circle K saying strange things are afoot at the Circle K, but that has at least the (laughs) stimulus of seeing a Circle K. (laughs) It was at least often because my friends would like wear a hat, we'd be in marching band putting on our hats and I would say it. Ah, yes, the marching band hats. And they often have like feathers and stuff on them too. So they kind of look a little bird-like. Yeah, so I would always say it like then, but then also people would be like, yeah, you know those memes where it's like, say a quote from your favorite movie and see if people know what it is. And I would always use that exact quote. That sounds right. That's the kind of weird, obscure call and response that feels appropriate there. Yeah. I do also kind of like the bait and switch of, oh, he's got a wizard hat. Oh, it's actually a living creature that's just (laughs) pretending to be a hat. No, it's a living creature that is a hat. (laughs) (laughs) Everything about the design of this weird old wizard Kazooie is fascinating it's minish cap to a t and he's in the movie for two minutes tops (laughs) jim henson just went just so extra with everything my god everything like (laughs) in this next part where sarah's like do you hear anything and hoggle's like no and then you flash to like a little red knight running through the hedge you never see him again he's not part of this scene he's just like there he may be one of the puppets they use at like a big fight scene later but like He's not part of this. He doesn't lead to anything. No. And then we hear the roar in the background and Hoggle's like, I'm out of here. Bye. Okay. I love that Hoggle is like, she called me her friend and I'm ready to reevaluate my entire life. Oh, that sounds scary. Later. Later. (laughs) (laughs) He hits the bricks so f***ing fast. I love this honest little coward. Yeah. Because I'm a coward and Jared scares me. And so Sarah like keeps moving forward and she eventually sees this giant monster hanging upside down and being menaced by these little guys with spears that have bitey chompy little guys on them. They're waving sticks that have like naked mole rats attached to them (laughs) to like bite Chewbacca here. Uh, this, this, there are now several layers deep on the horrible little guys in this scene. <laughs> yes. Like the the design choices was just like, so here's a horrible little guy, and it's like make him worse. <laughs> Add another horrible little guy <laughs> that like works with him. And now he's on the end of a stick. Oh, here's a horrible little guy. What's he holding? A stick. What's on the end of the stick? Another horrible, horrible guy. little guy. <laughs> 
Kira is like, how can I help? I need something to throw. And we start to see Ludo. Uh, Ludo's the monster that's hanging upside down. We see his rock powers because a little rock rolls up to her and she picks it up and uses it to throw at the little guys, knocking their helmet out of a skew. So then they start flailing around and hitting each other with their smaller little guys. We do not find out that that's why that rock happened for so long. It's just for a while. And not only that, but I just love that Ludo is for some reason it just cracks me up that Ludo has rock powers. <laughs> like like his superpowers that he screams and rocks do things. <laughs> That's his entire deal. It's not like he has like a, like a terrakinesis or something. It is specifically rocks and boulders. Yep. <laughs> Absurdly round rocks and boulders that roll. So then Sarah goes up, calms Ludo, and is like, is that any way to treat someone who's trying to help you? And Ludo immediately calms down. And she goes and lets him down by untying the rope so he falls to the ground. And then she's like, we're friends, aren't we? And he goes, Sarah, friend? And she's like, yes. And he's like, oh, okay. Yes, we're friends now. <laughs> we flash to Toby and the goblins and Jareth. And Jareth says, I'm going to call you Jareth, which actually comes up in the Tokyo Pop sequel manga. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, there's a Tokyo Pop sequel manga? There was. So before Tokyo Pop folded the first time, they made a Labyrinth sequel like that was supposed to be official, like a manga sequel about Toby. And it was Toby going back to the Goblin City to become the next Jareth. Sure. I read it. How was it? It wasn't very good, honestly. I wouldn't think so. (laughs) Were we expecting it to be? (laughs) I still did obsessively read it several times. You'll get that. Yeah, that's, yeah. But then we flash to a cute scene. Ludo's like, Ludo's scared. And Sarah holds his hand and it's precious. Because he's like, this is a puppet suit that is like taller than than Sarah, shorter, about the same size as Sarah. It's about two feet taller than Sarah. This is a full body suit, folks. This is a giant monster man who is spooked. He's spooked and Sarah holds his hand. He has a spook. Please hold his hand. He's scared. She briefly releases his hand to step forward and gesture and go, see Ludo, there's nothing to be afraid of, which is right when Ludo vanishes by falling to the ground. <laughs> we never really find out what happened. <laughs> he just kind of disappears and then comes back later. <laughs> Sarah should know how fairy stories work. She should really know better than to say like everything's fine or there's nothing to be afraid of. Don't worry about it. So then we flash to Hoggle. Uh, We see a cool perspective of a face in a tree. And in the distance, we can hear Sarah shouting for Ludo. And then eventually we hear Hoggle help. And Hoggle's like, oh, Sarah, she needs me. And he turns around and Jareth is there. And Jareth threatens Hoggle. He's such a fucking sleazy rat. I love him. Sleazy? Uh, (laughs) And he's like, Hoggle, it seemed to me like you were going to help the girl. And Hoggle's like, no, 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 no. I definitely wasn't, sir. Nope, wasn't doing that. No, she didn't call me your friend or anything. And Jareth is like, here's my orb, which is now a peach. Have Sarah eat that, please. And Hoggle's like, no. And Jareth's like, also, if she ever kisses you, I'll turn you into a prince. And Hoggle's like, you will? And he goes, the prince of the land of Snitch. And I I just love Jared. (laughs) This is just so much. So much. (laughs) This entire bit. And I mean, it's probably worth noting that we are talking about kiss as in not even like a vaguely sexual kind of kiss. It is the giving a frog a kiss or giving someone a smooch on the cheek as a reward from a maiden. Like I just, I just smooched my cat's head as you walked by and that's enough. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's like kissing a cat on the head. Meanwhile comes the weird dancing part that has no reason. Oh man. Okay. So like... These are the fireies. You'll notice in the credits, each one of these five guys has three puppeteers each. (laughs) They're done on a blue screen so they can like actually edit out the puppeteers because these are spindly, weird little guys. So like 
There's no way you were going to hide a person there. This is really early blue screen, too. Like, I'm not even sure it was done a whole lot in movies at this point in 1986. Yeah. This is just basically like one of the artistic numbers from The Muppet Show, but in Labyrinth. As I understand it, the effort of trying to make this whole thing work was so difficult that it basically almost upended the entirety of Labyrinth itself. (laughs) (laughs) And it just, Jim, buddy, this number doesn't even do anything. In the end, Sarah just scraps a head and launches it and flees, and that's it. They take their heads off. They talk about, like, oh, well, well, let's take your head off so you can, like, dance around with us, too. And, like, oh, it doesn't come off? That's weird. Let's fix that. This was a random encounter she rolled on the random encounter table. <laughs> like, three separate puppeteers each, not including voice actors? It, it just, like, <laughs> the fireys are wildly complicated. <laughs> Shit, just, I, I just, like... Jim Hansen's like, I gotta have He he was like, I cannot have this movie without the fireies. (laughs) And it's also wild because like, again, really early blue screen technology, green screen, I don't know. But like, sometimes when their mouths open, like the color is such that like the black kind of like filters in a little with the mouths. And like, it's a complete night and day difference when they are shot in the actual set as opposed to green screened in. Yeah. They're such weird little complicated guys and they just do nothing. They just sing a little song and swap their heads around. (laughs) It's very complicated puppeteering and extremely complicated choreography and that deserves to be applauded. But like, why is it here? Why? Why, Jim? (laughs) Hoggle saves uh, Sarah from this mysterious dance by throwing her a rope. And so Sarah climbs up and instantly dives on him, kissing his cheek and going, thank you. And Hoggle meanwhile is like, no, don't kiss me, don't kiss me. And then they instantly fall into the Bog of Eternal stench. That's right. The Bog of Eternal stench is real and it's here and it farts. It is so many farts. It's a farting bog. Someone got into the booth and made as many fart sounds with their mouth as they possibly could. And they used all of it. I feel like this movie does not have any deleted scenes. Everything that Jim Henson <laughs> wanted to be in this movie is, is in this movie. It's like asking if Jupiter Ascending has deleted scenes. No! <laughs> no, it doesn't because there's nothing they wanted to put in that movie that's not already in that movie. It's not necessarily that you've trimmed all the fat. It's that they wanted all the fat to be part of it. <laughs> Hoggle and Sarah start carefully walking along the edge of this wall so they don't fall into the bog. Because apparently the bog of eternal stench is such that, like, if you touch the bog at all, you will stink for the rest of your life. And frankly, I don't think these characters, like, they will say, like, oh, that's the worst smell I've ever smelled. I'm imagining this is basically the kind of smell that makes you barf. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It would have to be, right? And eventually, the rocks beneath their feet crumble and they collapse on top of Ludo. Yeah, Ludo's back. Ludo's back. Where was he? Doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. He's here again. And he's like, it smells so bad. Which is when Sarah in the distance notices a bridge and they walk up to it. And there's Sir Didymus, who was always my favorite as a kid. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. You know how tiny dogs want to fight everyone? (laughs) (laughs) What if that were a character? (laughs) A character who thought he was a knight. This is a weird little fox guy who is like maybe a foot tall. He's got a big brushity tail and he wants to fight everything. And he is the gate guard and nobody gets to pass. Without his permission. Unless they have met his very specific conditions, which he refuses to explain for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> he and Ludo fight for a few minutes. This is a long fight scene. I Meanwhile, Hoggle just runs past. This is just some pure like... 
Henson Studio puppet shenanigans. Yeah. And eventually Sir Denimus is like, before this day, never have I met my match in battle, but I shall call you brother now, my friend Ludo. Oh my god, this is like some kind of Don Quixote dude who takes himself extremely seriously. And finally, Sarah's had enough of this particular brand of nonsense and is like, So what oath have you sworn? He goes, no one shall ever pass this way without my permission. Oh my god. And then Sarah goes, what, can, can, can we have your permission? And he pauses, he's like, And he's I, like, uh, uh, huh, uh, yes? Yes? And she goes, okay, thank you. No, <laughs> like, sir. And he's like, yes, of no. course, fair maiden. This is never- This is also kind of some D&D shit. <laughs> it is D&D shit. This has never happened to him. <laughs> Nobody's ever just asked. <laughs> like, oh, c- can we have your permission? And he is clearly flabbergasted. Uh, uh, um, uh, yeah. y- yes? Yes. <laughs> they just passed. I mean, uh, they try to, but the bridge gives out below Sarah yeah. because it's made for a tiny puppet. It's made for a tiny puppet. Oh, this is a little guy's only bridge. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, oh, this bridge has been here for a thousand years. And you can tell. Yeah, <laughs> it shows. And Ludo howls and rocks come up. So we finally get that payoff from earlier. Ludo just creates a bridge by yelling for it, which again is some D&D-ass shit. He some D&D-ass shit. <laughs> this is when Sir Denimus turns and goes, Ambrosius! Oh my god. Which is Merlin, the dog, showing up to ride, which Merlin in the Kings of Britain, the book, is actually Merlin Ambrosius. So it's just further callbacks to Sarah knowing shit. Spectacular. This dog is sometimes a real dog and sometimes a puppet. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on, like, exactly what they need the dog to do. And, like, the puppet dog doesn't even quite match up to the coloring of the real dog all that no. much. You're just asked to go with it. Yeah, it's a fairy story. Don't worry about it. It's a very, very good dog, though. This very, very good, good dog, dog has a little saddle and the little, little puppet saddle. goes on top. The little saddle matches Sir Didymus's coloring because he's wearing a crest of, like, bones and a fire hydrant and this dude's wearing a doublet and it's got his house crest on it which is literally a bones and a fire hydrant and it also appears on the saddle he's a puppy he's a little dog foxy boy they get over these rocks and so like huggle is experiencing some problems because he actually likes sarah and their friends and he still is considering his entire life up to this point and so he's holding the peach <laughs> and he thinks about throwing it into the swamp and Jareth is like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He's like, no. <laughs> but don't worry. Suddenly everyone remembers food. Yeah. Suddenly everybody's hungry. I do want to put, I have a weakness for the character type of horrible little guy suddenly has soft spot for the first person in his oh, life yeah. who's nice to him. Oh my I God. Do <laughs> no, I do too. This is so <laughs> ideal. <laughs> You were the first person who has been nice to me. I am going to yeah. devote my entire life to you and protect you until you, until we are both dead. Yes. Mwah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You called me your friend once without thinking about it that hard, <laughs> and now I will die for yes, you. I love it. It's just mwah. It's a favorite. In all forms that particular dynamic takes, I love it. Hoggle, very begrudgingly, is like, Sarah, you're hungry. Here, have this, and hands the peach. And she takes it, takes a bite, and is like, this tastes strange. This tastes weird, like I just ate a contact juggling ball. (laughs) (laughs) And she starts stripping balls. (laughs) While Hoggle turns and hurries and leaves and goes, Dad, you said it, dead me too. He's sad. He's sad and guilty. Oh no. Oh no. What follows is a sequence called Little Mackenzie really wants to go to a masquerade ball, and adult Mackenzie still wants to too. (laughs) 
I assumed the scene was called the extreme sexual awakening of Tiny Mackenzie. <laughs> uh, it was extreme sexual. Because Sarah's so pretty in it. How the setup is that Jareth is doing more contact juggling. So much contact juggling. <laughs> so many balls they're being contact juggled. <laughs> Fushigi. And then he, like, blows them and they turn into soap bubbles that float across the forest to where Sarah has collapsed. And she sees this weird little vision of, like, her music box doll in, like, a little gown and suddenly she's in the gown. Also, it turns out, like, the other guys have just sort of wandered ahead of her and did not even notice that she stopped at all. And they're just like, oh, there's the castle. Uh, Sarah? Sarah? Which sounds right, honestly, for Sir Denimus and Ludo. Yeah. But Sarah's in this magnificent ball gown, which I desperately still want to own. Oh, it's so 80s. It's got the big poofy off the shoulder sleeves. Oh, it's so good. There's all this like tinsel stuff in her hair. And she's got big poofy hair with like jewelry on it. And it's so good. This is where we start singing The World Falls Down. Falling. This is a goblin masquerade. Everyone else is wearing a mask. They're all very clearly like kind of non-human, but they look human. We keep seeing flashes of Jareth in the background, surrounded by babes watching Sarah. As she just sort of like wanders through this party where people are clearly like mocking her and making fun. It's very much feels like some kind of weird fever dream. Eventually, as she's walking, she runs into someone and it's Jareth and they step forward and start dancing. And it's some fable shit. (laughs) And Sarah begins to fixate on the people dancing and how they're kind of laughing and mocking at her. And she starts feeling more dizzy and confused. And she looks up and she sees the clock. And she suddenly starts remembering and pulls back and turns to run until she reaches the edge of this dance and she grabs a chair and just breaks it. It's kind of implied here that this was what Jareth was trying to offer her with the contact juggling ball the whole time of like, you will have this beautiful dream where you're a princess at a party and everything will be wonderful and there will be dancing and drinking forever. And, you know, you'll probably forget to eat and then die. Yeah. (laughs) You might become a weird goblin creature yourself. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But she just takes a chair and breaks the whole thing open. And it's great. As the world falls down. Sarah breaks out. She lands in the garbage dump where Hoggle actually also is. This scene kind of really hammers home. It is impossible to predict when David Bowie is going to start singing in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, right? Because like, he even like doesn't sing some of this song. And sometimes when it closes up on him, he's like mouthing the words. Yeah. So like, is he supposed to be singing or not here? Unknown. Don't worry about it. Sarah encounters, Sarah lands on kind of like an old lady gremlin goblin who's carrying a bunch of stuff on her back. The old lady's like, you shouldn't be out here. You should be in here. And she opens the door to Sarah's room. And like, I love this little trash lady, by the way. She has like, (laughs) she's very good. (laughs) She's kind of short and squat, but she also has a pile of trash on her back that is like one to two times her height. Yeah. She has pure the lady that goes boo in Princess Bride energy, like (laughs) bow to her, bow to the queen of filth, the queen of putrescence, (laughs) boo, boo. It's very much like wandering merchant in a Dark Souls game sort of energy. (laughs) This is a horrible old hag and she is fantastic. She's fantastic. It's very good. Peak character design. Absolutely. And she's just like, oh, like Sarah wanders into a room and she's like, Oh, is this a dream? I think this was a dream. I wonder if daddy's home. Yeah. Which, by the way, I love that she asks, I wonder if her dad's home and not her dad and her stepmom. 
Yeah. Mm, nope. And she goes to open the door and note there's the trash lady. It's like, hello! Look at all of your shit! <laughs> Look at all of your shit! Have your shit! Don't you love your shit? Don't you love your shit? And she starts piling it on Sarah's back, turning her into another her. And Sarah, by the way, this whole time is dazed. Like, she's not quite sure what she was looking for. She is clearly yeah. shaking off the haze of the soap bubble party. And she's like, I was trying to find something or get something, and I don't know. So they're like, oh, you were looking for your little bear, weren't you? Oh, yes, you love your little bear. <laughs> this is all so important to you. And Sarah's like, no, it's more important than that. And so eventually this lady grabs her little dancing with her in the dress. And is like, yeah, this is so important to you. And Sarah suddenly snaps and realizes and is like, no, something's wrong. And she picks it up and she throws it down. Oh, oh, no. She finds the book and she starts reading the monologue, the heroine's monologue from the beginning that she couldn't remember the lines for. And then she's like, I fought my way to the castle. Oh, oh, shit. Return the babe. And she reaches out, grabs the little dancing doll and throws it to the ground and the whole thing starts collapsing around her. Because she declares all of her stuff is junk and not actually important. Yeah. And she has to get to her brother. And this is where you see the D&D book falling in the background. Nice. <laughs> I, I wrote Sarah, you LARPer next to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's such a LARPer. When Mackenzie says, Sarah, you LARPer, just imagine like that Spider-Man meme of them pointing at each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so, like, Sarah hears all of her friends calling for her, and she sifts her way out of the trash pile that she has fallen into. And they help pull her up. Sir Didymus and Ludo help pull her up. And they find themselves literally right outside the gates of the Goblin City. And, like, Hoggle, who has been wallowing in self-pity, like, sees Sarah, and he's like, oh my god, she's free. Oh god. Oh god. Oh god, I f***ed up. Oh no, I f***ed up. I f***ed up so bad. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Sarah and Ludo and Sir Didymus and Ambrosius all hurry forward. And as they start hurrying forward, the gates to the Goblin City start closing and form into, like, a massive mech, basically. <laughs> it is a giant... <laughs> Armored guy. Just giant armored guy. You know, in World of Warcraft, the big goblin mech suits with the buzz <laughs> saws on them? It's one of those. Comes out and starts fighting, and they're all fighting for their lives when suddenly Hoggle leaps off the wall on top of its head. And everybody's like, Hoggle? He's like, I'm here to help! And he rips off the top, revealing the tiny goblin manning it on the inside. Again, every <laughs> piece of technology in this universe is powered by little guys. Yeah. It's like, it's a giant mech suit that is like twice the size of Sarah, and it's powered by a little guy. Little guy. <laughs> what follows at this point is just pure madness and chaos. Hoggle, after they've fixed the guy, after they've, like, gotten rid of the door guy, he gives this little non-apology, like, I'm, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry about anything I did. In fact, I'm proud of it. I'm not ashamed of it at all. I, I don't I don't have any problems or feelings about it. I just don't I, don't, I don't know why you're looking at me like that. I don't have any problems. I'm fine. And Sarah's like, I forgive you. And he's like, you do? Oh, God. <laughs> it's just this horrible little non-apology. I love him. And then Jareth is like, Wait, what do you mean she's here? What do you mean she's in this? Oh, oh, shit, shit, shit. Hide the baby. Hide the baby. Someone hide this baby. <laughs> Just go. Go fight her. Hide the baby. <laughs> Just sheer panic. <laughs> and now for like an incredibly long sequence with lots of incredibly ambitious puppets that we will never see again. 
Oh my god. Pluto house summon rocks that bowl the puppets over. There's a little guy who's like a walking cannon. And then he fires cannonballs that are also little guys. <laughs> They're even littler guys who get stuck in the wall. They're like, did I hit something? Yeah. <laughs> did I do good? There's like dudes on little ostriches. There's so many weird little guys here. That guy in the red armor from the hedge mage is here. <laughs> Ambrosius is terrified, so he flees while Sir Didymus is like, no, we gotta fight. I wanna fight. Let me fight. <laughs> he runs into a little house. There is this point where Sir Didymus is cornered by a whole bunch of knights with lances. They point them at him. He looks down at the lances, look up at them and says like, very well, I accept your surrender. It's <laughs> 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 like, all right, if you, I, I see you've had enough. If you'd all like to surrender, I will let you live. Yep. I'll see to it that you're all treated well. <laughs> Which again, horrible little dog who wants to fight everyone. Yep. yep. Love it. But eventually, through all this choreographed fight scene, they eventually make their way into the castle. Also, I think a couple of real life chickens may have been killed by some of those boulders. Like, I know they're going to be like styrofoam, but some of those boulders definitely ran over some real chickens. <laughs> they did. So they make it to the castle. Sarah's like, there's only one way up. So she starts running. Everybody starts running with her. And Sarah turns around and is like, no, I got to face him alone. And everybody's like, but why? And she goes, because that's the way it's done. And all of them are like, oh, okay. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm in a fairy tale. What do you mean? Why do I have to go alone? <laughs> Like, uh, Which cue MC Escher scene? And they're like, okay, well, you know, holler if you need us. Good luck. You know, if you need us, we'll yeah. be here. Yeah, we'll be here. Bye. Bye. And now another Bowie song. Another Bowie song. <laughs> it's the MC Escher scene with all the stairs that go every which way. There's more menacing contact juggling. Jareth is walking around. Toby's on the stairs. Sarah's wandering around. Eventually, it all just collapses. Yeah, Sarah just sort of chooses to, instead of engaging with the stairs and the whole maze, she just says, screw it, jumps, and yeah, the stairs just sort of all collapse around her and break into the ether in like a very cool looking set piece, honestly. It's very cool. And she lands on this broken ruin of a thing, basically across from Jareth. And now it's going to be their dramatic confrontation. So, of course, we have smeared Vaseline on the lens. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And Jareth is like, you ask me to take the child. I've done so much for you, Sarah. You asked me to take the child. I took him. You cowered before me and I was frightening. I'm exhausted from living up to your expectations of me. Aren't I generous? Yeah, because of course he is her fantasy. He is her fantasy of like the he's the perfect villain slash love interest slash sexual menace slash whatever. Because she's like 14, so she's not totally sure what she wants yet. No. Yeah, she's got a lot of feelings and they're all in Jared. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so Sarah starts reciting her quote from the end of her play. He's like, just let me rule you, he says, which God, I that one launched a thousand ships. Oh, God, it did. Yeah, you do as I say and I will be your yeah. slave. That's, that's, oh boy, I could write a book about that line. Boy, howdy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sarah snaps, you have no power over me, just right before it starts bonging the 13th hour. <laughs> yeah, I love that, like, she goes through the whole line again, the whole monologue, and finally remembers the last line, and that is, you have no power over me. Because he is her fantasy. She is the one who can walk away at any time. <laughs> I believe you said you had a bunch of things you wanted to say about that line, Kit. Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, it's it's just that like, yeah, that is the perfect encapsulation of the fact that all of this is fundamentally 
her fantasy. This is the adventure that she has created for herself. And as a result, he actually, when she wants this to end, she gets to say when it ends because he's just a fantasy. He has no power over her. All the menace is what she has wanted to have. This whole time. Yes. Which, you know, there are people who, you know, watch this movie and they're like, oh, well, you know, Jareth is a sexual predator or whatever, no. you know. And it's like, that's not the nature of this at all. <laughs> no, that's not what this is. Again, it's like this is a teen girl who is slowly figuring out like what she wants going through sort of the transition of figuring out what her desires are between being a kid and being an adult. This is someone who is in sort of an emotional liminal space. This is very the 1986 version of Turning Red. <laughs> <laughs> It's the same sort of space, right? It's like, who am I? What do I want? What do I want from other people? What are my desires? Do I have desires? This is sort of the place that she has created to explore that space in some of the interpretations you can go with this and really the thematic one. As it bongs, as she finally says you have no power, as the clock bongs, it's 12 a.m. at home and she's suddenly in her living room. There's fabric everywhere. Jareth turns back into the owl. Yeah. Because like everything just breaks here. And she suddenly realizes she's at home. She charges up and finds Toby peacefully asleep. I do love that her Cutie, first please, thing is to be like, don't. okay, let's try this again. Yeah. <laughs> the baby is okay. She goes to sit in her room, takes down a few pictures of her mother. And then we hear her, that mom and her dad returning. And she catches a glimpse of one of her friends in the mirror. Toggle. So Hoggles are like, if you need us for anything, we're, we're your pals. Yeah, right here. And she's like, I'll always need you guys. Cute dance party. Yeah. I'm <laughs> like, well, I do. I do need you. You're my friends. And they're like, well, why didn't you say so? And she turns around and a bunch of the puppets from the movie are here and we're all having a dance party. There are little party hats and streamers and everything. <laughs> You know how in the 80s and 90s where sometimes they didn't know how to end a movie, so... <laughs> as long as everybody's here, let's party! Yeah! It was just a dance party, and they're all in her room. <laughs> is it real? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Like, the old guy with the bird hat is yeah, here? The fiery girl here. <laughs> Some of the goblins are here. You know, the ones what took her baby brother. It's a party, Mark. <laughs> Doesn't have to make sense. But, you know, it's fine. The story's over. Yeah. The actors have yeah. played their parts. Now let's dance. It was all her game, fundamentally. And that's Labyrinth. Also, it does end on Dance Magic Dance, because, obviously. Yeah. And then it transitions into the song that was playing over the start. Labyrinth. Labyrinth, though. Labyrinth. And... <laughs> With that, you can see why Baby McKenzie had her gay awakening and how David Bowie makes everything around him gay. <laughs> like, this could have just been a movie about just sort of, you know, coming of age, kind of a like emotional awakening kind of thing. But you put David Bowie in it in those tight little tights and <laughs> these huge flowy blouses. And it's like, all right, we're going to do this, but it's going to be gay as shit. Yeah. Yeah. David Bowie wearing exactly one square <laughs> foot of material on his entire yeah. lower half of his body. And like so, so much extra fabric around his top. <laughs> his enormous flowing shirts. <sighs> oh, Jennifer Connelly. I got to wonder if this movie was constructed entirely around having David Bowie as the Goblin King, because I cannot imagine this working if it was not David Bowie. Oh, actually, Jim Hansen wanted Sting for a long time until like... <laughs> what? <laughs> but then eventually, like, a bunch of, like, a younger folks, part of it, were like, no, David Bowie is way more popular than Sting, man. 
And he's like, okay. <laughs> Sting is admittedly, you know, a sexy <laughs> weasel. But at the same time, I don't think he has that same otherworldly energy that makes David Bowie work no. in this role. A exactly. No. Like, David Bowie fits so well because he just, David Bowie always has this weird touch of the fae to him. Yeah, he looks like a true fae who would definitely show up in the middle of a fucking circle of mushrooms and whisk you away to die. This is a man who has never, ever, ever given a shit about gender norms. No. <laughs> and he fucked that one guy's dad in Greece. <laughs> Oh, man. This is a movie that I feel like it definitely would have been my shit if I was little. I almost kind of appreciate being able to come to it just as an adult and sort of appreciate it as what Jim Henson was trying to do. Not to say that that makes it inherently a better interpretation, simply that I appreciate having the perspective on this that I do. And meanwhile, I appreciate that I had the VHS that was clearly recorded from television by my sister. Okay, that's so ideal, though. That makes it <laughs> feel even more like a fever dream. I feel like that's the ideal format. VHS is the ideal format for a movie like Labyrinth, I feel. Specifically VHS recorded over the television, over like a public broadcast. That has been like watched so many times it's got that band in the middle mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had a tape cassette version of that of like an early animated adaptation of the line The Witch and the Wardrobe where everybody had these enormous turtleneck sweaters was just the design they gave all the kids. I think Peter had bell bottoms. That was my thing that I just like wore a groove into the tape. And also there were definitely <laughs> like five seconds of commercials around like every 20 minutes. I think, Mackenzie, I think you have very much led us to the conclusion about how freaking gay David Bowie made this movie. Yeah. This already very <laughs> queer movie just made so much gayer. <laughs> yeah. And I think that means it's time for our final facts. Kit, what's your final fact? My final fact is, given the opportunity to make whatever you want, have a bunch of weird puppets that take three guys <laughs> to pilot them and have them show up in one scene that has no effect on the plot. Follow your bliss. Annie, what's your final fact? My fact is, if you're going to cosplay in the park and recite monologues, you goddamn better memorize the actual freaking monologue. <laughs> <laughs> Also, always wear sensible pants under your Renfair dress. Your thighs will thank you. <laughs> Mac, what's your final fact? Through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered, I've fought my way here to the castle beyond the Goblin City. For my will is as strong as yours, and my kingdom as great. Kingdom as great. Damn, I can never remember that line. My kingdom as great. My kingdom as great. You have no power over me! <laughs> oh, spectacular. Jennifer Connelly definitely made a bunch of people gay. <laughs> God, I really enjoy the perspective of society has already tuned you to be into David Bowie, but you with the extra mile was like, also, I'm into her too. <laughs> I love this sexual rat. And as a teen, I love this girl. She's so pretty. Next time is Kit's pick, and for that, our fact will be, always hire the Alan Parsons Project to score your fantasy film. We'll be talking about Ladyhawk. <laughs> it's an experience, kids. I have no idea what this is. I have never heard of it either. This is going to be completely <laughs> blind for me. I'm excited. <laughs> All right.
I Will Fight You comes out every five weeks. You can find us wherever you download podcasts. If you would like to talk to us, you can do that on Twitter at CRC Podcasts. You can find out more about this and our other projects, Gem Jammer and Date Me Damn It, on our website, crookedrussiancam.horse or crookedrussiancam.gay. Just like this movie. Just like Labyrinth. Just very dot gay. Just like this movie. Very dot gay. <laughs> Very dot gay. Very dot gay. If you want to give us money. Little bit dot horse. (laughs) (laughs) There is a tiny bit dot horse. More dot dog, but dog is kind of horse. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry about it. (laughs) Note to self, buy dot dog. (laughs) If you would like to give us money, you can do that at patreon.com slash the gem jam. For just a dollar, you can get early releases of I Will Fight You. Our $5 tier has behind the scenes stuff with show notes. And there's also just tons of other great stuff on there from our other shows, early releases, behind the scenes, cutting room floor stuff. Sometimes just random shit. Random shit. In character anxiety from Gem Jammer, if that's your jam. Also, if we get like 15 more dollars, Andy's going to start reading that in-character anxiety for oh, you. Oh, right. We do have that. Do you want to give us 15 more dollars so I can just read anxiety about orcs? <laughs> also, crookedrussiancam.dog is $55. Oh, never mind. Uh, I don't think I love dot .dog $55. No, I don't either. I don't think I love that idea $55 no, but- worth. <laughs> no, same. If it was Five dollars, absolutely. I would be interested in buying the domain for I love dot dogs and redirecting that to Jupiter Ascending's website. <laughs> yeah, hang on, let me check on that one. That one, that one might be owned, yeah. honestly, but uh, although we might get a, some traction with I've always loved dog. Oh, Ooh, <laughs> I've always loved dot dog. Lucas, look, this is important. We need to look this up now. This is important. We need we need this on on air. <laughs> this is on yeah, air. This on is air. our brand, Lucas. I love dot dog is taken. I've always loved dot dog. <laughs> dot dog. I've always loved dot dog is available for fifty five dollars. God damn, damn it. it. <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe a present for myself for later. A present for myself and no one else on the planet. <laughs> Myself and the Wachowski sisters. <laughs> GoFundMe.com. Help us buy I've Always Loved Dot Dog and redirect it. <laughs> to, the, to the Jupiter Sending episode of I Will Fight You. <laughs> that it redirects to like the first fucking Jim Jammer episode with Max or something. <laughs> Okay, sh**. Okay, okay. Also, like, rate, review, and subscribe us. Lucas, keep that in. I think that was the only other thing. I think that was. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Now that we've thoroughly sidetracked ourselves. (laughs) We do this every time. We do this every time. We will never have a clean outro, and you people just need to live with it. (laughs) This is a gift for all the people who don't immediately cut out the moment we start the outro stuff. This is the bonus content for you. That and Lucas's bloopers at the end of the credits. Listening to us might involve itching, vertigo, dizziness, tingling extremity, loss of balance or coordination, slurred speech, temporary blindness, profuse sweating, or heart palpitations. Holy shit! You just- what? Did you just rattle that off or did you look one of those up? I rattled it off. It's the happy fun ball ending. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, before we get into any other shenanigans, we'll see you next time for Lady Hawk. Yay! <laughs> see you next time. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. I'm Mac. And we have fought you.